Our Father and God, we bow before you this day in thanks for um, all that you are and have shown yourself to be and that you've been pleased to work in our hearts through the Spirit to embrace your Son and to seek to love and serve him in all that we do. We thank you for the promise that uh, we have the mind of Christ and that we are your sons and daughters. And we pray that um, the gift of the mind of Christ would bear fruit as we seek to know as Christ knew through your word as a lens to understand the world and our calling in it. And we pray you bless our efforts tonight for his glory and for our good. Amen. Tonight we conclude our study of the 12 statements that the committee provided as a summary of their fundamental positions. Uh, The last three, language, friendship, and repentance and hope. Uh, But uh, before we go to the next, uh, the last week we covered sanctification, impeccability, and identity. Does anybody have a question or concern or something that's troubled you since uh, we last met that has occurred to you as you thought over um, the material we studied. Anybody want to take us back to any of those topics? All right, I don't see anyone seeking the floor. So um, let's begin. We take up number 10. This is on page 12 of the report, and the topic is language. Um, um, They begin by saying that um, believers would be wise to avoid using the term gay Christian. And that's a good way to begin with what they want to argue here. Notice their saying this is a question of wisdom. And a question of wisdom is not one having to do with the explicit or implicit teaching of God's word. Wisdom in the Bible is the knowledge of eternal truths, but practically adapted, put into effect in a given set of circumstances. And so those truths are never changed, but the conditions, the ways in which they're applied change in a variety of circumstances. So uh, think of the Proverbs. Um, The the Proverbs uh, rejoice in friendship and uh, being neighborly, but they then say, uh, don't go by your neighbor's house early in the morning and shout out, hello. (laughs) Why? Not because they don't want you to greet your neighbors, but because wisdom says, though the general good of greeting your neighbor uh, is to be acknowledged, to do it at six o'clock in the morning while they're still asleep is probably not best adapted to their good or to your reputation. That's the way wisdom works. And they're saying that they're Their proposition here, don't use the term gay Christian, is, in their judgment, a question of wisdom. And so that means this is open uh, far more to uh, disagreements among us and uh, as we assess the circumstances differently. But let's listen to their thinking on it. Uh, Keeping the idea that we're in a wisdom setting, they noticed that the term gay may refer to being uh, attracted to persons of the same sex, but it doesn't communicate less than that. But for this is the critical point. For many people in our culture, to self-identify as gay suggests that one is actually engaged in homosexual practice. So they're concerned that that's the general sense of the word. And although they're going to acknowledge um, the... Um, Uh, the possibility of other senses. Their concern is that if the term is used, 
what many people, perhaps they think most people will think, is that I'm a Christian who thinks that it's fine to engage in homosexual practice. And of course, uh, uh, no one who's uh, gone along with the truths and propositions that they've set forth thus far would ever want to be in that circumstance. Um, the, um, and they note, even if it doesn't mean all of that, uh, it, it is taken in our culture generally to be something morally neutral or perhaps even morally praiseworthy. Um, they note, on the other hand, there are some who use the word gay to mean nothing more than same-sex attracted. And uh, that that's just a description of a state of affairs in a person's life. That's a thing they struggle with. And for, for some people, it's a way then of simply acknowledging that, that the reality of their struggle. But the committee thinks it's still inappropriate to juxtapose any uh, sinful orientation as an identity marker along with our identity in Christ. Um, so that's their uh, fundamental proposition. Um, again, notice they're saying inappropriate. They're not saying violating God's law. Um, it's a matter of propriety. And remember, propriety is circumstances relative. So just for, as a thought experiment, um, on this view, if the entire culture changed and everybody thought the word gay meant nothing more than same-sex same attracted, um, they might withdraw some of their concerns um, about its particular use. Um, the um, So that's the positive statement that they have. Does anybody want to re respond to that or um, uh, question, comment? Hey, Dave, this is Steve. Yes. I, I think you highlighted part of the issue is it, that, at least it seems to me, that some of the terms that they use just are constantly changing meaning. And if they're changing meaning and, and it's open to you know, my interpretation or your interpretation, and they happen to be different, then then using those terms are going to convey totally different ideas to different people who hear it. That's right. That's part of the problem that they're identifying, and they think that we ought to be wary with respect to it. Um, yeah, that's that's the quandary. Other thoughts? All right, well, let's press on to the qualifying paragraph. Nevertheless, they say, we recognize that some Christians uh, want to use the word, uh, the term gay, uh, as uh, a uh, reflection of the need to communicate in the language of the marketplace, the language that's contemporary, that belongs to people today. And... Um, Realizing that, the committee says they don't think it's a good idea for the church to have rules in such a way that it becomes a, a matter of church discipline. They use the term police. Uh, they don't think that, that the church or the elders of the church um, ought to go around policing the way people speak. Um, the... Um, they don't want to, in any way, um, justify sin struggles by somehow aligning it with being a Christian. But at the same time, they think that we need to be gentle and patient um, with folk who do think that there's a legitimate use of that term while they eschew entirely participation uh, in homosexual uh activity, sexual activity, uh, and just keep the conversation going and let it be a part of sanctification uh, that they hope if the conversation continues and obviously if the facts of the culture continue the way they are, 
that um, believers will come to agree with them and uh, not to use that form of, of identification. Now, let me add here, before we discuss that point, um, that um, an example of why a, a person in the circumstances we're talking about thinks that it might be important uh, to use the term gay. Uh, this was from a piece published by um, the uh, Institute for Religion and Democracy, uh, the Anglican Church of America, which is the conservative branch of the Anglican Church. They left the um, uh, Episcopal Church and largely, uh, or at least in large part, because of issues related to homosexual sexuality, so this Anglican, uh, a man, Peter Valk, uh, who identifies as a celibate gay Christian, writes in this way, I use the phrase gay Christian particularly to identify with other Christians who experience the same shame and loneliness that I had as a kid. I identify with other Christians who have endured the same pain and fearfully yet offered their lives and their, their whole selves to God. I identify with people of shared experience because more often than not, they are able to empathize with me and care for me best. I'm not identifying with a temptation or sin. Um, so there's the testimony of one who thinks it's an important thing. And what are... Uh, committee is saying is that they don't agree with that, they don't think it's wise, but they think we ought to listen to folks such as that, be empathetic, stay engaged in the conversation in hopes that they will come to agree uh, that the term is not helpful. So our committee displays wonderful moderation here. It looks to the good of both those who see the term gay as a threat and those who see it as a help to reach others. These are deep waters, but the calling is uh, to be patient with one another. Critically, I think, the committee has helped to reinforce for us the distinction between what is necessary, because God has commanded it in his word, and what is wise. That is the judgment of a particular person applying the unchanging principles of the word to different circumstances in this world. Here, believers are at liberty to respectfully disagree. Well, let me stop there uh, and let's talk a little bit about language. Um, any thoughts, concerns? Anybody want to address anything that we've talked about related to the use of terms. Yes, Bonnie. I want to, reading this earlier, I was thinking the same thing and it hasn't really cleared up for me. Are they saying that um, just in loving and being gentle and kind and helping them and grow in, in their faith that that will move that language change that language choice that they have i think yes i think that's what they're saying their hope is and that that's the best way to address uh the issue i will say that there are some who seem very deeply exercised about the use of terms here mm -hmm. and uh i've i've read things that betray uh great emotion great uh, concern for the honor of Christ uh, and the church and great fear, fear uh, that this is kind of a halfway house on the road to perdition. Uh, so um, it's a fraught circumstance. I, I don't share those concerns, not because I, I don't share the desire for the honor of Christ and the church or and certainly uh, don't want to go down any slippery slopes. But I also think what our committee has said here is, is true. This is a matter of wisdom. 
language changes in its sense. Um, there are some people today who object to the term homosexual Christian, not just gay Christian. And yet, uh, our, one of our antecedent denominations, very solid Reformed Church, freely used that phrase in the Gen General Assembly report that they prepared and was accepted on homosexuality. So you can see from the 1960s to today, um, uh, our sensibilities have changed. The truth hasn't changed. Um, and that calls... I'm just trying to think, of, are there other situations where we use language to describe, we as in, in the body of Christ, to describe ourselves in a way that identifies us with our sinful behavior that we've come out of? I just was trying to... Be, I, I didn't think of any, but it was just... I, well, probably the chief comparable is an alcoholic Christian. That's the one I thought of, yeah. Yeah, the, and, and folk in at least certain therapies are taught to identify themselves as an alcoholic. Um, and, but, uh, I mean, colloquially, you could imagine a person struggling with greed and they say I'm, I'm just a greedy Christian I I, mm -hmm. I struggle with it I mean it, it isn't that common but on the other hand it's not um, unimaginable or at least it's not to me <laughs> well the one thing I really I really appreciate the, the tenor of the way that they've written this that the care and the concern and it how it teaches us or is teaching us that that's how our approach needs to be toward each other, not to have a care and a concern and tenderness toward anyone who's in any sin, that um, endeavoring to help them learn and grow and help ourselves learn and grow. And um, anyway, I just was curious. About yes, that. good, good discussion, Bonnie. Anybody else have a thought or a concern about what we've been saying. All right, well, let's press on uh, to friendship. Um, you might think that uh, it's odd that we would have some <laughs> concern about friendship, but this is such a complicated matter and uh, so embroiled from a host of different perspectives that it becomes necessary to address it. Um, the, uh, so they start with their affirmation. They think that uh, the contemporary church uh, doesn't pay attention to friendship the way uh, it ought to, that it doesn't have a proper sense of the importance of friendship, uh, and that it doesn't honor particularly friendship among folk who aren't married. Um, now, I'm fine for that to be said, but I, it did occur to me, uh, what evidence is there of that? Um, I would have not myself, at least on the former point, have thought about the church being deficient in their evaluation of friendship, but the main point here is that it doesn't really matter. Perhaps it's so. And so let's think about it together and uh, consider. Yes, Morgan, what would you like to say? So a little while back, um, I was doing kind of an intensive study on friendship and like what that looks like biblically. Um, and I happened upon the argument, and this ties into our sermons on Sunday, um, an argument for homosexuality saying that Jonathan and David were actually in a relationship together and their intimate friendship was homosexuality and just the Bible didn't want to explicitly say it that way. Can you kind of talk about how that's not exactly true and about how friendships should be intimate in that way, but also that's not you shouldn't be I don't want to say like you shouldn't be sexually attracted to I'm, I'm confusing my point here, um, but just can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, there's no hint of uh, homosexual relationship 
anywhere in the text with respect to David and Jonathan. Um, and that's in the midst of a story that is more than happy at great length to go into David's sins. It's unblushing in the way in which it gives a plain-spoken account of his failings. So the argument is that there's a sort of whitewashing of David. I mean, the uh, it, it just can't conceivably stand when... Uh, I mean, on the whole scale of things, um, to be involved in an adulterous relationship uh, and to have the husband murdered by a commander-in-chief, putting him in a position in the warfare where he uh, knows the husband's going to be killed for his own sexual satisfaction, that is so aggravated a sin, it's hard to imagine one that would be greater. And yet if the text could straightforwardly recount that and then show the horrors that followed that, the idea that they might blush about a homosexual relationship I think is incomprehensible. So that would be the first point. Um, the uh, It's true that uh, friendship is a very, very broad term. And um, so we, we try and modify it. We have acquaintances who are sort of friends. We have friends. There's a close relationship. We have, then we have, you know, your best friend, your BF. And then now today we have your, what is it, BBF. Or no, BFF. <laughs> So uh, the fact that we try and develop uh, a, a terminology that identifies this span means that it's a, a very, very broad subject, and there are uh, different ways of ex- expressing friendship. Uh, but the Bible clearly uh, values the idea of friendship. Um, and uh, it, it clearly is of this worldly love. It's not a spiritual thing of itself. Um, Just in the way eros is a this worldly love. It's not a spiritual thing in of itself. But among folk who are spiritual, it becomes an expression of their spirituality. But that's why you have magnificent stories of friendship among uh, unbelievers uh, throughout history. And... um, so I think that's uh, what I would say, but um, and we'll get further into this, I think, perhaps as we talk about it. But do you want to press that further, Morgan? No, no, I appreciate what you had to say, and it, and it definitely helped kind of clear it up some. Because even in Paul going over it on Sunday, it it reignites the confusion in my mind about mm. how this this is a concern, and I've even heard some friends make that argument and that's that's not the point of their friendship we we see people violently murdered in the bible and all kinds of other things so i appreciate that point that was very helpful great thanks morgan anyone else a thought on this point all right let's uh turn to the um oh we haven't finished the first one yet um the um so um regardless of how big the problem is they want to say and we can certainly agree that as a church we ought to be seeking that all of us um uh, value friendship and particularly uh to include believers who struggle with same sex attraction uh that all are valued members of the body of Christ um and uh, who find a place in a family there. And that's the image of the church that is so precious. And that's one that we ought to, by God's grace, uh, be offering that fam- familial relation uh, to everyone who professes Christ and is united to us um, in the bonds of our fellowship. So that is absolutely a value that 
all churches ought to embrace and be pursuing. Um, and furthermore, they say that there that there would be special friendships among those who struggle with certain issues, uh, that they might help themselves to be accountable and to encourage one another, that that's perfectly appropriate too. And we see all kinds of versions of that. In fact, in some ways, at least as I understand friendship, uh, the part of the distinction is that it's not so much the qualities of another person that you love, but what makes the friendship is the shared love of some particulars in this world, that friendships typically are united around some kind of shared concern, some kind of shared uh, task, uh, among people who perhaps personality-wise would, would not have been drawn together if it had just been a matter of being drawn to a particular complex of gifts and abilities and so on. And thus it shouldn't be a surprise to us at all that uh, there might be special friendships among those who struggle together um, uh, in the warfare against same-sex attraction. Just in the same way, I don't know whether you ever saw the uh, film Sergeant York, uh, but they showed when he was drafted into World War uh, One, he was from Tennessee. Uh, he had never taken a step out of the valley that he was born in. And he, he was uh, sent to uh, the camp to learn to be a soldier. There was a New York cab driver there. There was a school teacher from Ohio people who would, would never have been attracted to one another and would never even have a, an, an occasion to be attracted to one another if they, if they did. But the shared uh, fear, the shared uh, need to help one another, the intensity of the contact, combat forged friendships that uh, were unbreakable. And that, at least, I understand is one of the principal ways that folks who have thought about this think about friendship. And therefore, it shouldn't be surprising to us. It's an important element uh, for all kinds of Christians who face different issues and they find the bonds of friendship in those who uh, specifically face those kinds of issues. So let me pause there before we get to the nevertheless and see if anyone wants to correct me if you've thought better about friendship than that or um, C.S. Lewis in his Four Loves has a wonderful uh, section on but that's one of the four loves the love of friendship and he does a very thoughtful discussion of the whole matter and as compared to um, uh, the eros and agape and phileos um, well thoughts All right, then let's uh, look at the qualifying paragraph. Nevertheless, that all this being said, they don't think it's a good idea for same-sex attracted people to be in exclusive, contractual, marriage-like friendships. Nor do they think it's a good idea for there to be same-sex romantic behavior uh, among those who are same-sex attracted. Uh, that is, romantic behavior being ways in which people have a physical love for one another and shows itself that's short of the sexual relationship. So, two points. The behavior itself, it, it, it shouldn't, though celibate, mirror uh, romantic kinds of behavior, however our culture defines that. And the first one, that they should not, for the sake of friendship, have exclusive and contractual marriage-like friendships. Um, they go on to say that uh, they don't think 
that same-sex attraction is a gift in and of itself, and there seem to be some in this movement. Uh, but even here, let, let me qualify this a little bit. I know what our committee is saying, but we also know that much of Reformed piety considers even our sins to be a gift as leading to further sanctification. And Puritan piety discussions are full of this idea that what was a curse to me, I begin to see as a gift, not the thing itself, but what is accomplished in me is I die to that sin and live uh, to uh, its opposite in my calling in Christ. That way of talking and thinking is um, uh, quite common. And it wouldn't be impossible to imagine in that context someone saying that I have hated my same-sex attraction but I now come to see it as a gift, not meaning some good thing that God has called me to engage in, but the battle that I was called to because of it is a gift, and thus in a a, a metaphorical way to refer to it that way. Um, So... uh, I absolutely agree with the committee. We don't consider same-sex attraction a gift in the sense that of itself, uh, I I should prize that. Uh, And furthermore, we don't think um, uh, that this sin struggle or any sin struggle of itself should be celebrated in the church. But of course, and again, this is a very fine point, Engaging in the sin struggle, any sin struggle, ought to be celebrated in the church. We ought to rejoice with those who are seeking daily uh, to die more and more to sin and come more and more alive to Christ, who are fighting the good fight. Uh, And and with the anticipation, they can say with Paul, I I won the race. I ran the race and I won it, Uh, that I made progress in it. So... Well, there you have it then, uh, friendship. Um, the um, comments, questions, reflections. So, Dave, you mean that last point, um, similar to the way, if I've got, if I'm remembering it right, Paul considered the thorn in his flesh, that it wasn't a good in and of itself, but but he saw the purpose of God in it. Yes. And so he counted it as a, a good thing. Yes, that's exactly right. That would be a perfect example of it, um, Paul. And um, the... Uh, um, Oh, I had another illustration in mind, but it escaped me. Um, but yes, I, I know. I I actually count my hospitalization last last May as a pretty significant gift, even though I didn't enjoy it much. Mm. But it was a real time where uh, the Lord uh, humbled me, and I, I I think I was blessed to to benefit through parts of it. So. Yes, that's a great point, Paul. And, you know, John Piper has written a book uh, um, with, I think, a title something like Don't Waste Waste Your Disease or Don't... uh, And it's all along those lines. This is God's providence. It's come to you for your good. It's a curse in and of itself. But by your sanctifying faithfulness uh, in, 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 in pursuing it, in dealing with it, uh, you can count it as part of God's goodness to you and making you more like our Lord. And that's true with uh, sufferings, and it's true with the battle of sin, against sin. Any 
other thoughts or comments on that? Yes, Cheryl, please. Hi, Jeff, actually. Oh, Jeff, um, I'm sorry. No, no, that's Cheryl's name is up there. That's what you find. Um, so I guess I am, so I, I guess that there's a, a, a strong link between situations of, like, um, sickness that, that can be a struggle and that can uh, lead to temptation of despair and other things like that and a struggle of sin like what we're talking about homosexuality uh, in that both we understand uh, are are within God's uh, providence and, and um, but there's also a, a isn't there a, a, a an important distinction there I, I, I don't and I don't think you or, or Paul were equating the two like they're you know um, struggling with sin is the same as struggling with uh, illness or something. Um, what what's the distinction in terms of because one is dealing with um, uh, a, a moral issue uh, or a, a, a sin issue, and the other is um, in some sense more uh, mundane or whatever. Right. Um, the. Um Typically, two words are used with respect to uh, the world after the fall, and that is that we experience sin and we experience misery. They're the same in the sense that they're the fruit of the fall. They're the same in the sense that they cause incredible pain. They're different in that my sin is part of my inward corruption that I'm guilty for. Whereas my sickness, my disease, my catastrophes in the external world are not part of my inward corruption for which I'm guilty. But they come upon me because I am a sinner in a sin-filled world. Um, So there's a, a crucial distinction in that Uh, I can't be guilty. I can't feel guilty because a tree fell on me. But I certainly need to fear that uh, uh, and avoid being bitter against God because a tree fell on me. And that becoming the occasion for my sin. Whereas, on the other hand, if I struggle with anger... And uh, it's a bitter experience for me. I would love to be freed with it from it. But there, I say, but this didn't fall on me. This is who I am. This is uh, part of my corrupted nature that even as a Christian remains in me. And so therefore, I need to repent of that and to seek God's grace to do otherwise. I can't repent of the tree falling on me. Does that make sense, Jeff? No, I, I think that it's on it. And in terms of all uh, all scripture thorn in the flesh, um, I don't think we know a lot about exactly what that was. Um, could it potentially be in either of those two categories? It strikes me it could be. Um, but... Uh, yeah, you're right. We don't know very much, and there are speculations all over the map. But, um, I mean, we, we know that we certainly see, I think it's fair to say, in Peter, a certain impulsiveness uh, that is not wholesome. <laughs> um, and uh, it was uh, when he said, I'll never leave you even if everybody else does. And then when we find him before a slave girl denying Christ, I mean, that and that pattern in his life was a, a great struggle for him. But it strikes me that wasn't just trees falling on him. That was part of the fruit of his corrupt nature that he had to battle for a good bit of his life. 
Mm-hmm. Good point, Jeff. Any other concerns or issues you'd like to raise? I see Deb has put in the chat um, uh, the proper title for um, Piper's book. So I hope if you're interested in that, you'll go to the chat and copy it out. Um, thank you, Deb. All right, let's press on. The last of the 12 statements, repentance and hope. Uh, They begin by making reference to Martin Luther and his 95 theses. Um, uh, Luther, um, who uh, insisted as a fundamental point of Christianity that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance. And by that, he meant to um, uh, refute Rome's claim that it was kind of a a subdivision of Christian piety. Um, Luther wanted to claim that it's the whole calling of our life. And I hope you remember that Pastor Wolf preached a very fine sermon on this point um, on Reformation Day. over at uh, Grace Presbyterian, and uh, if you wanted to review that, the uh, recording I'm sure is available on our website somewhere. I've I've not looked, but um, so that's the first point. Um, the whole our whole life is one of repentance. Um, the um, in all the sins that we struggle with. Our calling is always, as we come face to face with them, to repent. Um, the um, where we are passive with respect to our sins, we're called to repent. Um, the uh, so we, we can make some distinctions here. Uh, Repent and believe, and you will be saved. That's talking about a once uh, for all event, but just in the same way as believing nevertheless continues on through the whole of the Christian life, that repenting carries on. So there is a sense in which repentance is kind of an entree experience to the Christian life. But the point is that a version of it carries on throughout. Um, the um, and they particularly note uh, that when we have heaped upon others misplaced shame, or if not dealt dealt well with necessary God-given shame, then we uh, need to repent of these things. Now, what are what are those things? What are they talking about? Well, to heap on others misplaced shame. Uh, Misplaced shame is when I feel guilty about something that I shouldn't feel guilty about. Um, And uh, Christians have had a tendency from time to time to have added to the rules of God's word. And when uh, people who disagreed with them didn't comply with them, they tried to make them feel ashamed of themselves to get them to change their mind. And that's an utterly improper use of shame. Now we're going to in a minute say there's a proper use of shame, which most people want to repudiate that today. But certainly to shame someone where there's no guilt is to uh, do harm to them, and, and we certainly ought to repent of that if we find ourselves doing it. Uh, and at the same time, um, if we uh, don't de- de- deal well, charitably, sympathetically, um, with proper God-given shame in our- ourselves or others, we need to repent of that. And that's the nice point of the committee here, is to underline the fact that there is a God-given shame that is necessary for us to deal well with. You can see it in texts like Isaiah 48, 4. Um, Here the prophet condemns Israel. He says, because I know that you're obstinate 
and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead is as brass. That's a phrase that's so powerful that is typically uh, regularly used in scripture uh, for shame. Someone whose forehead is as brass. It's as if to say it would it'd be impossible for the idea that I ought to change my mind to p- penetrate that brass dome. Uh, whereas um, the, the person who is malleable and ready to hear where they're wrong, their mind is open to um, the shame that would come with sin. The other is uh, uh, being stiff-necked. You're a stiff-necked people. That means you're a stubborn people in this case, whereas you ought to be ready to bow your head and to acknowledge your wrong. So shame, st- stiff-necked. Jeremiah 3.3, 3, uh, this idea is apparent again. Um, he's explaining the sad providences. The showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come, and you have the forehead of a whore, because you refuse to be ashamed. Here's a person who's brazen. That picks up a little bit the idea of forehead is brass. To be brazen means to be hardened and yet shining, as if you're doing the right thing in your sinfulness. Um, Ezekiel 3.7 But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all of the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Um, uh, So there is a proper shame, and when a person won't engage that, they need to be encouraged and helped to struggle with it, as well as when a person is dealing with with shame that is not proper, uh, is not um, um, commensurate with the actual circumstances. Uh, And this is a very wholesome acknowledgement by our committee. Let me pause there and see if anyone would like to comment or think further about it. All right. Then the, the final qualification. Uh, even as we grant these things, uh, and they talk about the evangelical grace of repentance, uh, spoken of in Westminster Confession of Faith 15.1, and as they see many reasons for rejoicing, uh, that there are those who are penitent, uh, though they continue to struggle with same-sex attraction, living lives of chastity and obedience. These things are things to rejoice in. Uh, And furthermore, they say that believers in this situation that is struggling with same-sex attraction and yet living in chastity and repentance, these brothers and sisters can be a courageous example of faith and faithfulness as they pursue Christ with a long obedience. I wondered what on earth they were talking about there. I'd never heard of a long obedience, but I clearly don't read the right books. Uh, This is an allusion to Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. Uh, It was uh, first published in 1980, and it was uh, a revised, expanded edition published in 2000. Apparently one of the best-selling Christian books on this subject ever, and uh, I uh, clearly need to pay, pay broader attention to the literature, but that's what they have in mind here. It's the, the fact that this is a long battle, uh, and that uh, folk who are struggling in this area in particular can be a courageous example to us of faith and the living out of faith that is uh, faithfulness. Um They also want to give thanks for uh, ministries and churches within our denomination, and we have many where there's an attempt to um, minister to folks struggling in these things, and uh, most importantly, what they want to give thanks, uh, that in fact the gospel can uh, redeem the worst of sinners. And they go through a catalog of uh, those in uh, nice metaphorical language, uh, and they conclude by saying they rejoice in the 10,000 spiritual blessings 
that are ours. And uh, who knows what that's an allusion to. Anybody? 10,000 spiritual blessings. Verse 3 of Great is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. That are ours when we turn from sin by the power of the Spirit and trust in the promises of God and rest upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Uh, language from Westminster Confession of Faith 14.2. I don't want to take the time now because I want to touch on one other subject. Um, but you should, I hope you'll read and remind yourself of uh, Westminster Confession of Faith 14.2. I think it's a wonderful, very important paragraph for understanding the nature of faith. Any question? Comment? Let me lastly then um, take up in the few minutes we have left just to touch on the subject. Um, I was uh, asked um, the uh, about transgenderism. And um, we're not going to get into that all that much. Um, but um, I was asked, what do I think about uh, people who feel that they were born with the wrong gender. And there was the suggestion that, uh, couldn't that be like a birth defect? Um, and uh, thus, as we correct any other kind of birth defect through surgery, why wouldn't we use surgery to correct the person who feels like they are born with the uh, wrong gender. And the answer to that simply and quickly is to say that way of phrasing it begs the question. It presumes an answer that needs to be proved. It can't presume that answer. And what I mean by that is the person we're talking about is in the place where psychologically they feel like they're one thing. And physiologically, they are another. This way of phrasing the question says, and the way they are, that is, the body is what's wrong. Whereas it's just as possible. In fact, I think uh, the evidence is clear. It is more likely that the problem is the way the mind, the way a person feels. And that's what has to be corrected. There clearly is such a thing as gender dysphoria. But there are multiple reasons why people come to that disordered mental state. But disordered mental states never lead us to mutilate the body. Let me direct you your attention to a man called Dr. Paul McHugh. He was, for 40 years, the University of, uh, um, he was the University Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School. 40 years. 26 of those years, he spent as psychiatrist-in-chief of Johns Hopkins Hospital, and has been studying people who claim to be transgender. In fact, he pioneered the surgeries for gender change, but he won't do those surgeries anymore because he came to the conclusion that they did not and could not heal. After he pioneered the sex change surgery at Johns Hopkins, they came to see in their follow-up studies that the practice brought no important benefits to the subjects at all. As a result, he said, we stopped offering that form of treatment in the 1970s. Our efforts, though, had little influence in the emergence of this new idea about sex or upon the expansion of the number of transgendered 
among the young and the old. Dr. McHugh goes on to talk about, in an article I'm going to put in the chat, he said, look, we need to address the basic assumption of this contemporary transgender movement. The idea of that the exchange of one's sex is possible. It, like the storied emperor who is without clothes, this is starkly nakedly false. Transgendered men do not become women, nor do transgendered women become men. All become feminized men or masculinized women counterfeits or impersonators of the sex with which they identify. That is the crisis that we face here. And he refers to an extraordinary study that was done, the longest study following up on uh, sex change reassessment, uh, sex change reassignments ever, extended over 30 years, conducted in Sweden where the culture itself is strongly supportive of the transgendered. And the study documents those who had these surgeries as those who suffered lifelong mental unrest. 10 to 15 years after the surgical reassignment, the suicide rate of those who had undergone sex reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that of their comparable peers. Now that's from a, a uh, essay, a rather small essay that Dr. McHugh wrote uh, a few years ago. I'm putting the link to that in the chat. He has written a massive paper on this uh, that is the most thorough demonstration of the uh, impossibility of um, doing any good through this horrible mutilation of bodies, especially among young people. Young people who have all kinds of confusions mentally, and, all, and many, many young people go through such confusions through puberty. And that now they're being told that one particular stage of your development is in fact determinative of where you'll always be, and you ought to mutilate your body to bring your body into conformity with that state of mind, whereas states of minds are enormously fluid. And many who have such confusions at a young age grow out of them into the body that God gave them. Uh, There's much more that could be said here, but I I think, and there's some wonderful books, um, I, I didn't have the time to get the title, but the book's all in the press now because Amazon kicked it off. But the head of the Ethics and Publicly, Public Policy Center uh, <clears throat> has written a book entitled When Harry Became Sally. And it is a brilliant, dispassionate, evidence-based study to show that this is a nightmare. Uh, there's also uh, a study by, I believe, a secular woman Uh, who is trying to show the same thing. There are so many things wrong with this movement that it would be hard to number them. But I did want to address the question because it had been asked, and I did want to point you uh, in a direction that um, uh, because of the way it's covered in popular press, it's very, very hard to get the story out. Paul McHugh, it is one of the geniuses on this subject. And uh, he's just being ignored now. Um, And uh, I I think it's very important to have some understanding of uh, that fundamental reality and how it ought to be repudiated, not the transgender person, uh, the person suffering gender dysphoria. That person's created in the image of God. Our calling is to love them, and to help them come to see that the body they have is the body God intended them to have, and that they're to grow up in that body and glorify Christ in that body. Well, questions, comments, concerns?
right. Dave, yes. the, guy, the guy who wrote the book When Harry Became Sally is Ryan Anderson. Mm. And uh, they interviewed him a few months back on um, the Mortification of Spin podcast. So Carl. Uh, oh, my. And, and particularly in, in the wake of Amazon removing his book. Um, and it was uh, <clears throat> very interesting. The time, you know, they talked a lot about the timing of it, that it happened. You know, after Trump had lost the elections, so now you have a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, and uh, you know, the, so they, they were talking about the timing being, being suspicious. But 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 it was a very interesting interesting um, you know podcast about about how they've um, you know they just kind of took his book right 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 off and. <laughs> And Carl uh, Truman made the point of, yeah, I can buy, you know, five versions of Mein Kampf uh, on Amazon, <laughs> on, a, on Amazon, but uh, but I can't buy this book. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I'll have to listen to that. Ryan Anderson is absolutely brilliant. And at the same time, he is so personable. He isn't a fire-breathing ranter and raver and calling down the fire of heaven on people. Uh he, and he is um, a master of analyzing evidence and laying out clear arguments. And it's just a tragedy that that book is being blackballed by some of the central purveyors of literature. Uh, happily, there's one very courageous publisher that's keeping it in print and making it available to people. But uh, Thank you, Steve, though. I'm glad to ha get his name out there. It just slipped my mind. Any other questions or comments? Uh, I know that's a lot to end up with, but um, I'm grateful for you all uh, being part of our meeting tonight. Um, we're going to transition over to some of the longer form essays that follow. So you'll see the next section has two parts in it. Um, and uh, so you'll just want to read the pages that... Uh, uh, are identified in your syllabus, and we'll discuss those. Bonnie? I don't seem to be able to see any of the messages in the chat. I don't know if anybody else is having that problem. Yeah, I, I had the same problem. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know how... You know, if, if we could call Zoom, we could figure it out, but it's only a, some of your operating systems. I think most people are getting it. Um so I don't know what to make of that, whether it's a setting somehow. I, I, I'll try. I, I have a ton of meetings this week, but I'll try, if I can, to get on a, a Zoom help desk or something and, and see if they have some idea of what's going on, why we have some people. Well, there are other meetings that I've been on, like the Bible study on Tuesdays that I see the chat all the time. So I, that's what I just was curious why I don't see it. Yeah, I'm. I missed. Hey, Dave. Yeah. Uh, I. The only chat that we've been able to see is Bonnie's chat. Huh, isn't that <laughs> interesting? <laughs> so, <Yeah>. did, <laughs> Bonnie, did you see Deb Patterson's chat? I didn't see Deb's either. No. Yeah. Oh my so, goodness. Neither did we, but yeah. we saw Bonnie's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ask something, but that's the only thing I have in mind. <laughs> oh my! Well, who on earth knows? Um, oh, wait a minute! Oh, I, I, I've, I, I, don't, I haven't solved the general problem, but I solved this problem. Um, I was not on send to everyone. So, let me try that again. Oh, I've lost. There it is. Now, how about yeah, that? I just got it. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I got that one. <laughs> got it. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's good news then. I'm glad we stayed on long enough to sort that out. I'll have to make sure I have the proper uh, two per identified. 
Um, all right, any other thoughts about what we've talked about or where we've been? Or All right, let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for the matters we could cover tonight. We are grateful for the gift of speech and the um, calling to use words well and uh, to use them to communicate, to heal, to give grace, uh, to correct. And we pray that we would never be those who uh, foolishly argue about words, but that we would be those who use words wisely and attend carefully to brothers and sisters to try and refine and correct our speech in a way that would communicate more perfectly for the good of others. We thank you for the blessing of friendship. And we pray that you'd help us to be good friends. We pray that you would help us to, at the same time, avoid the use of friendship to uh, foster illicit relationships. And uh, we do pray that uh, we would be a people of repentance and hope. And we thank you for the committee's work and pointing out to us ways in which we need to strive to be repentant. And yet pointing out to us in conclusion the things that we have a right to be wonderfully hopeful for, even in our difficult and fraught circumstances. Grant us that that hope would burn brightly within us, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.